lot of reasons. Good morning, everyone. 
Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And whether you are in person or joining us via live stream, whether it's Facebook or YouTube, we offer a very, very warm welcome to all of you. We are thrilled that you have chosen to worship with us this morning. And it is our heartfelt prayer that this will be a rich time of glorifying the Lord, of worshiping Him, of being in His presence to commune and praise Him. Uh, If you're visiting with us here in person this morning and it's your first time here, we have goodies for you. Hopefully somebody met you at the door with a bag filled with good stuff, and we want you to have that. And so that is for you. And for all of us, I see my friend. Dick, you're ready. You're ready for this. You know exactly when I'm coming. The uh, friendship pads. If the person on the end of the row would kind of get the ball rolling, so to speak, this is for everyone. You all are invited to do this, and that is to fill that out, pass it down to your friend. See that? No, we did that on purpose. That's why it's called Friendship Pad. Uh, It lets us know that you are here, and we would love to have the opportunity to get to know you a little bit. A couple of quick announcements before we enter into worship. One of the things I want to let you know is when we get to the opening hymn, you'll see the first line, it looks like the title, All Creatures of Our God and King. That's actually the first line of the hymn. Please sing it. It's actually a very great line. And we're the creatures, he's the God and King, we're going to sing that together. So we just want you to do that. Ladies, this looks like a fun time. I wonder if I can wear my wig and join you on this particular... Some of these trips you all are taking, I'm like, wait a second, I'm missing out. Thursday, October 7th, meeting here at 9.15 a.m., going down to Eatonton to go to, and you see all the information, the Uncle Remus Museum, the Historical Museum, some of the several other things that are going on this day trip. Here's the important thing. Lynn folks needs to know that you are going. So those four magical letters, RSVP, Please do that for Lynn by October 1st, and all of her pertinent information is down on that. So we would love for you to do that. One other thing, and that is uh, the next build for Sheds of Hope is tomorrow, and tomorrow, it runs through the week. Tomorrow starts at 1 o'clock, and so we invite you to join out with that. And I would like to invite our good friend Dick Forrester now to share a little bit about Sheds of Hope. I'm I'm thrilled to be able to uh, stand here and praise God that uh, for the blessing he continues to shower on the Sheds of Hope ministry and to report to you that our Sheds of Hope fundraiser is not just successful but, but far beyond successful. It has it's been a wonderful experience. You will call the, thank you. Hold your applause, it gets better. <laughs> uh, you recall that our goal was $25,000 to, to raise $25,000 to enable us to continue building sheds this fall and into next year. Well, at the end of August, we had almost $31,000 resulting. And as of last Monday, we're very cl- we're at $34,700. We're very close to 35000 So we're funded, uh, well funded. 
I'd like to ask everyone who has, is either currently or has served on the, in the Sheds of Hope ministry to please stand, and that includes Sue and Fran, our, our lunch team. Stand, please. And, and, remain, and remain standing, if you would, please. On behalf of all of us that stand before you, and also on behalf of our brothers and sisters who've lost their homes and, and need storage for their belongings, which includes families that, uh, for whom receiving a shed of hope is often the, their first Christian experience. And on behalf of our fellow volunteers from across the PCA membership who demonstrate the love of Christ by delivering and setting up the sheds, uh, we thank God for his grace and mercy, the Holy Spirit for his leadership, and you and our congregation, you and our congregation and, and in, from those in the community for your gener generosity and for having given so freely to the Shed of Hope ministry. Please be seated. We're joyful that now we have the research, resources to continue serving our Lord by helping our brothers and sisters in need through the end of this year and well into 2022. m disaster response right now, which is the, uh, our denomination's governing body or uh, controlling body for our disaster response is helping families in need in uh, North Carolina, Louisiana, Tennessee, and the National Hurricane Center is tracking, currently tracking three more storms in, in the uh, Caribbean. So the need is for the Sheds of Hope continues. We praise God that we're now positioned to continue to supply that need. Thank you. Thank you, Dick. That what a encouraging and talk about rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord. He is good. His generosity overflows. Praise the Lord for his goodness and the opportunity we have to share that goodness with others. Those are some of the announcements going on in the life of the church. We're excited to be coming together to gather together to worship the Lord this morning. And so as the prelude is played for us. Let's prepare our hearts now for worship. Thank you. 
Amy and Lynn, I want to thank you for playing that because that particular song, it's an older song, As the Deer Pants for Streams of Water, but it comes from Psalm 42. And I pray that it reflects all our hearts as we enter into worship, that we're not willing to just settle for mediocrity, we're not willing to settle for distance in terms of our relationship and our walk with the Lord, but we truly pant hunger and thirst for more and more of communion with him. So I appreciate you all reminding me and bringing me into the Psalms as God initiates and calls us into his very presence this morning. Our call to worship is again from the Psalms. Psalm 98 verses 1 to 3 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Lord, how marvelous are your works. From the power of your right hand and your holy arm, You have done what we could never do for ourselves. You have worked salvation for us. And you've made this this salvation known. You have revealed your righteousness to the ends of the earth in the sight of the nations. We now invoke your presence to be with us, that we would sing and glorify your holy name. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Let's stand now together and sing, all creatures of our God and King.
The scriptures tell us that all of the promises of God, everything that has been promised, finds their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. So from time to time, I like us to look back at the Old Testament because we get to see what's promised that will one day be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, our scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 7. And as I read this scripture before you this morning, I want you to think to yourself, even though this was written hundreds of years before Jesus of Nazareth appeared on the earth, and Isaiah may not have known the name Jesus of Nazareth, he's looking forward to the Savior who is presented in the form of a suffering servant. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Friends, this is what Jesus Christ, hundreds of years later, fulfilled and did for you in his life, in his death on the cross, and in his resurrection. This is the reading of God's Word, and may God add His blessing to the reading of His Holy Word. Let us stand together and sing the power of the cross. Oh, 
That is one powerful, powerful song. Let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer, and we will begin by reciting together the prayer our Savior gave us, the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in our time of pastoral praying. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we praise you for who you are. And we praise you that you called us into your presence this morning that you have gathered us together, that you've called us out of the world and into this sanctuary, into this place where we can come and commune with you, where we can say, Our Father who art in heaven, our hearts, flawed as they may be, seek that your name would be set apart and hallowed. That we ask, Father, that we would cultivate the hallowing of your name, that we would cultivate in our lives your name being holy, set apart, unique, that we would praise you and honor you and magnify you. And then we ask, Father, that we long for your kingdom. May your kingdom come. We know that your kingdom has been inaugurated in Christ Jesus. And even being here this morning is a taste of the presence of your kingdom. We taste your goodness. We sense and we know that we are forgiven. We pray with the Apostle, may the eyes of our hearts be opened that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the glorious inheritance that you have given us together in the saints. But even though your kingdom has been inaugurated, there is still so much more to go. For we see hurt, and we see affliction, and we see pain. We see injustice, and we long for the day when you will make all things right. We long for the day of your new world. But while we long and while we pray thy kingdom come, may we be committed to your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for us here at Lake Oconee. We also pray for our community that we would more and more look like the city of God, that you would renew us, that you would transform us, that we would be changed. And we are reliant upon you for all things. So we lift our needs before you. And we pray for our daily bread. We thank you for your physical care for us. And we pray for those who are hurting. We pray for any who are in hospitals. We pray for any who are home. Any who are going through lengthy recoveries. We ask, Father, for your comfort and your love to be with them. Your presence to be very real to them. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness for not living in such a way that represents you as you are. We ask your forgiveness for those things that we shouldn't have done, but we did, and those things we should have done and failed to do. We know that apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. And so we ask that you would forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
and that you would lead us not into temptation, into the time of testing, but deliver us from all evil. For yours and yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Forever and ever, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
there's a part of me that feels like I don't need to preach the sermon. Dick just did. That was at, oh, he just walked out the door. I missed him. <laughs> there is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. If I preach anything other than that, come after me, because what I want to do is give us the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And that's what Dick just did in that song. That is beautiful. Let us pray, but I still am going to preach. See that? I said I didn't have to, but ah, we're going to go through with it anyway. How's that sound? We're continuing our study of the book of Romans, looking at two little verses, but boy, are they packed with some rich material this morning. Chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. Let's pray together, and then we will look at the Word of God. Lord, may we, and I make that uh, my prayer this morning, that we would leave here with an increased hope in Christ, that as flawed as the sermon might be, as flawed as the messenger is, we would see the beauty, the riches, the glory of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, you would be portrayed as our life, our salvation, our power, our hope. So open the eyes of our hearts. Open the eyes of my heart as we approach your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. And remember, because it's kind of in, the, in English at least, it's in the middle of a sentence. So the end of verse 24, okay, Paul had just written how we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then the beginning of verse 25, so this is the first word you have printed before you, whom. And any English grammarians, you might have been looking at that if you saw that and go, whom? Who's that referring to? Well, let me tell you, it's referring to Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And friends, this is the very word of the Lord. Well, one of the things that we love is giving and receiving gifts. Now, I know everybody wants to kind of go, oh, yeah, I love giving gifts. And we do. But let's be honest, we like receiving them too, don't we? I mean, consider Christmas for a second. I can remember as a kid anticipating Christmas. And my mother, who watches every week on the live stream, so my guess is she's watching this morning. If I got any of my details wrong, she can call me later and tell me in terms of this. But I remember as a kid anticipating Christmas. I could not wait for Christmas morning. Myself and my two brothers, I was the oldest of three. We weren't allowed to get our parents up till seven in the morning, which we thought was incredibly unfair. <laughs> Make us wait till 7 a.m. Okay, little did we know, a whole lot. So we would get up, usually 5, 5.30, something like that, and we would congregate in one of our bedrooms. That's one of the details I don't remember. I don't remember which one. And we had to wait. Seven o'clock, we could get them. But then there was more waiting. They had to do things. Now, we lived in a two-story house, 
what do they call that, split level? We lived in a split level. And we had to wait for things like for them to go downstairs and get their morning coffee. Again, at age eight, I didn't understand that. Now, and you could ask Joel when you meet him sometime, oh yeah, Joel, wait for dad to get coffee. As a matter of fact, you're lucky if I don't make you wait for, your sec for my second cup. So I get all of this now. But then the three of us would be at the top step, and my dad would say, hold off, and he'd have, I guess back then, the Polaroid camera or whatever it is, because he wanted to get a picture of our faces coming down and seeing, now we were typical kids, the loot that was under the tree. So he wanted to see this kind of thing. Look at all the stuff that we got. Did it ever, does it ever boggle your mind in the Christian faith that Jesus says that we're to come unto him like little children? That maybe even at our ages, and I won't go around asking how old we are, but maybe even at our ages, we are to look at the greatest gift. The one that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 was an inexpressible, indescribable gift that maybe we should be looking at it with that same kind of wide-eyed wonder that we looked when I went and I went, there's the new football I wanted! That maybe we should be coming. Jesus said, come unto him. We get, and I know I'm a Presbyterian speaking to Presbyterians, but we get so reserved, don't we? And I'm not asking us to be something we're not. But shouldn't we have some of that sense of childlike wonder thinking about who Jesus is and what he has done for us? I can't help but think that Paul is wanting the church at Rome, the capital of the empire. He goes into the heart of the tidal wave, so to speak, speaking to the church at Rome. You know those guys that had Nero as an emperor? And he wants them to get a taste of this inexpressible, indescribable gift. And yes, we're going to wade into some deep waters of some rich theological precision. Yes, we are going to learn to say the word propitiation this morning. And I'll tell you now, it's not propitiation. That's not how you... It's propitiation. You've got to say it right if you're going to be good theologians. But I think that's not the whole of the story. I think what Paul is intending is to invite the church to a profound kingdom party. A profound kingdom party remembering that the purpose of this kind of theology is not simply the transfer of information, though we certainly have to get the doctrine right. But it is the deepening and furtherance of our worship of the triune God. It is for us to know and love God with that childlike wonder with all of our beings. Last week, I introduced this section, which goes from basically verses 21 to 31, and I said the theme of it, was the righteousness of God. Last week we saw that the righteousness was manifested apart from law. And Paul stated how it was basically this is the righteousness that is given by God to us as a gift. That righteousness that is credited, or the fancy, see here's your theological precision, imputed to us. We are declared right. 
And as a result, we are now in a new position before God. We are justified. And we're going to look at that because this text this morning mentions that doctrine. It is the saving righteousness of God. Now in verse 20, verses 25 and 26, this is the second time in this brief section that the righteousness of God is mentioned. And Paul writes that it is to show forth the righteousness of God. Verse 25, if you look, this was to show God's righteousness. In other words, he is putting forth the righteousness of God himself as a person, showing God's character as righteous, that God himself is righteous. Now let's look at this theme and ask ourselves the question, what is Paul teaching us here concerning this inexpressible, indescribable gift? What does he want us to know? What does he want us to learn? Two things. First, the problem the gift addresses Second, the purpose, the gift accomplishes. Okay? First, the problem the gift addresses. Now, verse 24 ended that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, through the buying back, buying out of slavery into freedom that came in Christ Jesus. And verse 25 is continuing this thought when it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So here we are. We're waiting. You're going swimming with me? We're in the deep waters of our theological precision introducing us to a rich, yet I'm not sure how much we understand, theological term, propitiation. What does that word and its similar word, expiation, see that? You could really impress your family and friends today at lunch, by the way. What did you learn today? Oh, propitiation and expiation. Wow. What do these words actually mean? Well, Thomas Schreiner, who's a great commentator on the book of Romans, talks about propitiation, first of all, meaning the removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. It refers, and these are in Dr. Schreiner's words, to the turning away of the wrath of God, which would otherwise rightly fall on the sinner. Whereas expiation is the removal of sin, the wiping away of sin. So now, putting these two things together, we can see that expiation is the wiping away of sin, which results in propitiation being the satisfaction and removal of God's wrath. In other words, we were under the wrath of God. And we have to learn to see the wrath of God as not just God losing his temper, okay? It is not just, we, we can't compare God's wrath with our wrath. You know, when we show forth wrath, what do we do? We yell, we scream, we, you know, it's, it's more emotional in tone, isn't it? Where God's is his fixed opposition to sin, to evil, to anything that is unholy. So in other words, it is very objective. And when we put these things together, if that's what all of us were in that position, all of us were under the wrath of God because of our sin, because of our unholiness, we see that what had to happen was that our sin had to be wiped away so that God's wrath could be satisfied and removed. And how did that happen? It happened through the blood of Jesus Christ. It was all accomplished by the sacrifice 
of Jesus Christ. Now, if that's what these words mean, how do we apply this? How do we look at this? Let's try to get a sense of this. The first thing we need to understand is that if we're going to understand terms like this, we need to understand that God is graciously, look at the words in verse 25 when it says, whom God put forward. Do we understand how gracious God is? That this is God's doing beginning to end? That God is graciously stepping in and doing what we could never do ourselves. God didn't have to address a problem. God didn't ha- God could have given up on humanity. He would have been absolutely right, absolutely holy, absolutely righteous if he did that. There was nothing requiring God to do anything about our sin. But he is addressing a problem. He chooses out of his grace, out of his kindness, out of his mere benevolence to address this problem. And the problem stems from the fact, the reality. And just take this in for a second, that God has always had a desire or a purpose for which he created us. And what was that purpose? I want you to think with me. Why did God create us? Was it because he was lonely? Did he need love? You know, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and all it says is, in the beginning, God. So he existed, self-existent, eternal. There was never a time when there wasn't God. We're introduced in the beginning, God. And he existed, we're told, as a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who had perfect communion, perfect relationship. And 1 John chapter 4 tells us that the nature of this triune God, who he is by nature, three simple words. See, I encourage memorization of Scripture, but I give you easy verses to memorize. I want you to memorize this. See, I gave you before Jesus wept. I'm not telling you, you know, memorize the entire book of Ezekiel. Memorize these easy ones. Here's three little words. God is love. That means everything God does, everything he's ever done, is consistent with his love. Even his other attributes, his holiness, his justice, his wrath, his righteousness, is consistent. It's a holy love. It's a righteous love. It's a faithful love. He is always love, and he never needed anything. He's completely sufficient in himself, so he didn't create us because he somehow he needed us. You know, I'd like to think that. That's how egotistic we can be. I'd like, oh yeah, he needed Jeff Birch, of course. No, don't be silly. He didn't need anything, so why did he create us? Because his nature is love, and love is always self-giving, so is his nature, his love compelled him to share it, to give it away. He created us to share himself with us. In other words, to commune with us. And in order to have communion with us, God designed places, special places for that communion, meeting places between God and us. Now, I want, you to, I want to mention here something that is very important about how we understand and interpret the Bible. Allow me to do a little teaching for a second so that when you do your Bible reading, you read Ezekiel. And you, notice I'm assuming you read Ezekiel. You read Leviticus. 
Oh my goodness, Jeff, where are you going now? Let me give you, let me teach you another big word, hermeneutics, the science of interpretation. Let me give you, I'm feeling good this morning, by the way. Let me give you a hermeneutical key, meaning real simple, here's something to look for in terms of interpreting the Bible. And I love this because this is an aspect of God's love. He knows we're like little children. He wants us to be like little children. He treats us like little children. In other words, God communicates in pictures. He communicates in images. He uses pictures in order to communicate spiritual realities. He does this throughout the Bible. We celebrated this last week. Do you remember the Lord's Supper? Those are some of the most beautiful pictures in the world. Bread, wine, or juice communicating spiritual realities revolved around Christ. So now when we read the Bible, we've got to recognize and pay attention. Pay special attention to the biblical pictures that are going on, the images here. So God throughout the Bible has set up or established special places of communion designed for intimate communion with himself. The first special place like this was the Garden of Eden. While the whole earth was God's, and he's omnipresent, he had special places, and the first one was the Garden of Eden, designed to be kind of like a sanctuary, a special meeting place between God and man, where man could have intimate communion with God. Now, of course, before sin entered the world, this communion could be experienced without hindrance. God and man enjoying perfect communion together, nothing separating them. But then sin enters the world, man turns away from God, so what does God do? He banishes them from the garden, and a problem is introduced because of sin. God, because he's love, wanted communion with man, but because of sin, a problem existed. And God is just, he's holy, he can't just overlook sin. His holiness cannot be in the presence of unholiness. So guess what that makes us? All unqualified. So the question now that's driving the drama of the Old Testament and driving the story of the Bible is how can a holy God have communion, share his love with unholy Man, sin must be dealt with. So throughout the Old Testament, which is giving us pictures of how God will deal with this problem, we've got these signposts, we've got these pictures symbolizing realities like communion with God, that the New Testament will show its fulfillment. And one of these signposts is the tabernacle, later to be followed by the temple. The tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament were meeting places between God and man. But remember, and this is important, this is why reading Leviticus is important. We simply can't, you know, you've got this sin problem. It must be dealt with. You simply can't go into the special presence of God. I know we love the hymn, just as I am, but something has to be dealt with before you go in just as I am. That is in my present condition. Remember, the issue is, and the issue of justice and holiness is how can a holy God share his love with and commune with an unholy people? And remember that what Paul is describing 
is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything Paul says is grounded in the narrative of the Old Testament. If you want to understand Romans, you have to understand the Old Testament. Because that's what Paul is alluding to. So now, the text tells us that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood. Do you recognize this is language of the temple here? This is temple or tabernacle language. Paul is expecting his readers to make, his con- to make this sort of connection. So as the commentator Tom Wright, N.T. Wright says, he says, in the tabernacle and in the temple, the priest would place bread on the altar as an offering. Paul is using this image and combining it with another, the mercy seat. Remember that. Hold on to that. Where between carved angels, God would meet with his people in grace and forgiveness. The word Paul is using for propitiation is the Greek word hilasterion, and it alludes to this mercy seat. So again, as Wright says, instead of the temple and its symbolism, Paul is saying Jesus himself is now the place where, and also the means by which, the God of Israel has met with his people and forgiven their sins. In other words, Jesus is the new tabernacle. Jesus is the new temple. That's why in Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He is saying all the promises of God, think back all the hundreds of years of the Old Testament, are finding their fulfillment in him. Everything the Old Testament pointed towards is fulfilled in Christ. All of this imagery is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the mercy seat. He's the sacrifice. He's the priest. He's the offering. He sheds his blood. And thus Jesus deals with the problem of sin by himself by being the propitiation, accomplishing the removal of God's wrath by the offering of himself. This is the inexpressible, indescribable gift. Let me ask you a question. Are you opening the gift? Are you in your life, even as Christians, even as some of you have been Christians 40, 50, maybe 60 years, are you daily opening the gift? Or do we, this is one of the nice things about, you know, think about little kids. What do they do when they open it? Oh, I want to play with the wrapping paper. I like the cardboard box. That was great when we were kids. But friends, in your Christian life, are you just playing with the wrapping paper? Are you just kind of playing with the cardboard box? Or are you really getting in and enjoying and embracing and learning the implications of and living in light of this indescribable, inexpressible gift? But there is more. Look at the rest of the text. We've seen the problem the gift addresses. Now let's see the purpose the gift accomplishes. The rest of the text says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show, notice the second time now he says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Twice it says here to show God's righteousness. Why does Paul say that? Why is it necessary for God to demonstrate, to show, to prove 
his righteousness or his righteous character. Well, earlier, verses 21 and 22, the righteousness of God that was revealed was the saving righteousness of God, which was given to his people as a gift. Here, the righteousness of God is seen by most commentators as an attribute of God. This is his righteous character. So again, as Tom Schreiner puts it, he says, now, of course, God doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. God isn't forced by human beings to prove his righteousness. Rather, his desire to prove his righteousness rests on the fact that he wanted to demonstrate to the world that he is righteous. On this view, God set forth Jesus as a propitiation to demonstrate his judging righteousness, his righteous character, which was called into question because in history, God had passed over former sins without punishing them. God is just. He must punish sin. Remember we looked back in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul said the wrath of God is being revealed. And there are many today who have a problem with that whole concept. They say, isn't God love? How can a God of love be wrathful? Now, of course, here's how I would answer that. I would say I wouldn't want to worship God who isn't. I wouldn't want to worship a God who isn't a God of wrath. I mean, think about this with me for a second. How can I worship a God who doesn't deal with all the evil we see out there? How can we worship a God who doesn't promise to make right all that was wrong? How can I worship a God who doesn't deal with all the injustice and hatred and oppression of the world? And again, as Schreiner puts it, he says, God's wrath here is not primitive, arbitrary, or capricious, but it it is his holy and righteous response to human sin. As I said earlier, God's wrath is not the same as our human wrath. Our human wrath is typically this emotional response to not getting our way. We think of wrath and we think of it like we would in our petulance. I didn't get my way, I'm going to show it. Throw what? A temper tantrum. That's not God's wrath at all. His wrath is his holy, just response to human evil and sin. See, I don't know about you, but I want a God who will deal with abuse, with oppression, with abortion, with racism, with sex trafficking. See, and again, we need to recognize here, this is so important, Jesus is not trying to persuade a so-called angry God. The text tells us God put Jesus forth. God put Jesus forward. The members of the Trinity cannot be played against one another. They are working in perfect union, unity, harmony, integration together. The only proper response to this is childlike wonder, awe-filled worship, cultivating trust and hope. And look what else. The text says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Through the work of Christ, God is both just and justifier, meaning he justifies us. Do you know how free that makes you? You no longer have to justify yourself. We're always, if we analyze and take a look just for a second at our relationships, do you know how often we are trying to always, our responses, 
Examine your words for a second. How often are we justifying ourselves? It's almost like we're saying, Jesus, that's fine. I need your justification. I need you to justify me for heaven. I can't handle that. I, I can take care of this down here. Who do we think we are? This frees us from having to justify ourselves. See, again, let me close with this couple of illustrations just to try to apply this and bring this home. What does this mean? And again, I'm going to give it my best shot at communicating clearly with you. I remember hearing these illustrations years and years ago, and I think they're very faithful to the text. Picture a law court scene, okay? Picture a law court. Now, here's the bad news. We're the defendant, okay? There's a prosecutor and there's a judge. God's the judge. It's not a jury trial. The evidence is just going to go before the judge. So out comes the bailiff. I want you to picture the bailiff. He's wheeling in these tall, not these little small filing cabinets, these tall six-footers filing cabinets filled with drawer after drawer of evidence, evidence of everything you've ever done wrong, evidence of everything you've ever done or failed to do, thought, said, your words, things you should have done and didn't. Now, you're the defendant. You're sweating bullets. But you have a defense attorney. And he says to the judge, don't worry about it. Open the folders. And you're looking at them. What? Do you not know what's in these folders? Open the folders. Look inside, he says to the judge. Take a look at the evidence. And you're thinking, oh, no, what are you doing? I need to fire my defense attorney. I need to get, you know, who do I call now for a new defense? Wait up. The judge looks on it, and on the first folder is stamped, paid in full. And then he looks at the next folder, paid in full. And he starts going through every one. Debt is paid, forgiven, paid in full. And you're actually like, huh, can I keep you now? <laughs> I need this defense attorney. Stay, I'm not calling a new defense attorney. And the judge is going, based on the evidence, because the ju judge is what? What have we been seeing in Romans 3? The judge is just. The text says he's just and justifier. Justice is going to be based on evidence. So the judge says, based on the evidence that the debts have been paid, I make, I render a verdict. Forgiven. And you're going, that's awesome. My debts are paid. And the defense attorney says, wait, 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 that's not all. There's more evidence to be presented. And you're going, I'm, I'm not going to pay you more. This, what is this, overtime? Let's go. No, no, what? And he says to the judge, I have some filing cabinets filled with folders as well. Start opening the folders. Keep examining the evidence. And in each folder, it is the perfect righteous, holy life of, G of the defense attorney who happens to be Jesus Christ. It is all the positive obligations of the stipulations of God's covenant. And again, God is just, so what is the verdict? The verdict is that based on the evidence of Jesus' perfect life, I declare you, the defendant, to be righteous. I count you. I look at you. I treat you. I speak about you. 
as in the right. God is the justifier, and you are the recipient. You are justified. Based on the evidence of Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death, God's legal declaration of you is both forgiven and righteous. That's what justification means. It's not just forgiven. It's positively in the right. Now, I said I had a couple illustrations because I want us to look at this one step further. Remember I asked you earlier, what are you doing with the gift? How are you living in light of this doctrine? Because the rest of the Christian life is to be lived in light of this glorious, inexpressible, indescribable gift. We love God. We worship. We relate to people. We relate to the world. We approach God and others based on this doctrine that we're forgiven, we have nothing to defend, and we're righteous. We are cultivating and learning to live out of that gift. So what happens now? Well, let's go back to the law court imagery. Where all this time while the defendant was waiting for trial has the defendant been living? Well, he's probably been in prison, locked up, in bondage, and so as a result of God's justification, what is he now? He's set free. He is set free out of the prison. Now, I could picture this prisoner, right? He's set free, he's out of the prison, and then he kind of goes, huh, where do I go? I've been in prison for a long time, since my mother conceived me, kind of that whole doctrine of original sin thing. So I don't have a driver's license, I don't have a car, I don't have a home, I don't have a house, I don't have a job. What do I do? Ah, wait. There's more. And even though this isn't explicitly in this text, Paul will get to this, specifically in chapter 8. We learn that what God does is he not only frees people, but he adopts these freed people into his own home, which what do you think God's home is like? probably a palace, and he adopts them as his own children. We are children and we are heirs. That means everything that's God's, he gives to us. Are you starting to get the picture we really don't get grace as much as we think we get grace? We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are children and heirs. God, remember what I said, the original purpose of creation was? God wanted to share himself with us. It's all about communion. It's all about living with God, intimate communion with God. So God brings us to his home, to himself, to live a life of love, a love relationship with him. He takes us to himself, to his palace. And I want you to think of what a palace could be like. What is the center of a palace? Wouldn't the center of the palace be the banquet room? The banquet room. And again, what do we too often do? We tend to live out in the narthex. We tend to live in the vestibule. Or maybe go, oh, go to the porch. Take a look at here. I like what, where God is saying, I want you to come into the holy of holies, the banquet room, and commune, and feast, and live with me. Let Christ feed us all the time. We need to learn to cultivate that. 
to cultivate being in the banquet room with God, to recognize and cultivate the fact that God loves us. Think about what Paul will say later in Romans 8. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, and he's spending, this is just part of his letter where he's spending time teaching us all that, what it means that he's for us. This indescribable gift. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you put forward Jesus. And I pray that we would spend the rest of our days understanding, grappling with, wrestling with the implications, the ramifications of what that means, that we would live out of grace. Thank you that you've taken us out of the prison and brought us to your palace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing this classic hymn of the faith, Nothing But the Blood.
friends, now receive the Lord's benediction and be dismissed out into the world. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.